We're going to finish this chapter, no matter what. (laughs) Isaiah 28, and let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for bringing us together this evening. And for making it clear to our hearts that that we can come to cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. And, And you desire in this place at this time to fellowship with us, to meet with us here. And we look at this as, as, as you being the guest of honor in this place and, and in our meeting and in our, in our gathering and in our koinonia and our fellowship here today. We, we welcome you, Lord, to be among us and to do your work in us. And I consider, Lord God, that, that when we do this, we never do it without the problems that we face each and every day. We, we, we never do it without having to bring something in here, Lord, that, that we know that only you can, can deal with. And, and, and so we want to lay those things out before you right now in prayer. And I believe every heart here today has something to lift up to you and to say, Lord God, I, I'm burdened right now. I want to be able to hear God's word. I want to be able to hear your word. I want to be able to hear the message. And I... But, but Lord, clear my heart and my mind. It could be anything from a sin to a number of sins or, or just the, the, the carrying around of a, of a load of guilt. It may be concern for others who are hurting or dying or, or in pain of one sort or another. And we want, Lord God, to be able to hear you clearly. And so, Lord, we lay these things before you now. We lift them up to you. We lift ourselves to you. And we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would come and do a tremendous work in us even now. Because this isn't just any Wednesday. It is the Wednesday you've gathered us together to meet with us, to teach us, to give us your word, to give us your spirit, to give us your power, to give us your heart so that we can be more like Jesus today. And we want to be more like Jesus today and tomorrow. And even more and more like Jesus tomorrow than we are today. We offer to you our love and our gratitude for all you've done and all you're doing. Reveal to us, Lord, your truths today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Isaiah 28, verse 14 is where we're starting tonight. We began a series, or we're beginning a series of studies, actually. Uh, we're going through all of the book of Isaiah, but uh, in chapter 28, uh, certain woes are being given to Israel, to God's people, in particular to Jerusalem. And so that... Uh, continues in in this particular passage here. And you'll notice that it begins with the the word therefore, which is a a summation or a conclusion being given to us. So it's kind of a funny place to start, but nonetheless, let's read there. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men, 
who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we are in agreement. Or, and with Sheol, we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. What an interesting statement the leaders of Jerusalem are making. Now, time and again, the prophet Isaiah had, had given the children of Israel plain messages, very clear, very plain and simple messages that everyone in the land could understand. Messages that pointed to the Lord's desire to care for them and, and to deliver them from their enemies. The problem was that they rejected these messages. Much of what we deal with in the book of Isaiah is Isaiah having to deal with God's people because of their rejection of God, their rejection of God's word, and their rejection of God's care and concern. Now you might say, well, that's really weird of them. Why do they do that? The question is, why do we do it? Because if you think about it, oftentimes we do the very same thing. But in particular now, they rejected the message of trusting in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the offer of his rest and his protection from destruction. You know, we could go back to the time of Ahaz and the, the message given to him in Isaiah chapter 7. Let me read a little portion of that. In verses 3 and 4, it says, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Yashub, your son. Shear Yashub means uh, uh, the remnant will return. His own son was named that. He says, Go out now to meet Ahaz or Ahaz and Shear Yashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Now, how many times, you're, you're going to see this little phrase a lot tonight in this particular passage that we're studying, but going all the way back to chapter 7 and throughout all of what we've studied in the last 27 chapters, how many times have we heard, Take heed, take heed, listen, pay attention, take heed. And he says again to the king and to his son, or actually to the king, his son and him take, uh, say this, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. For these two stubs of smoking firebrands, uh, for the, uh, the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. In other words, it was at the time when, when Rezin of Syria and, or Aram and, uh, and Remaliah, who was the king of, of, of Israel, the northern kingdoms, were get, getting together to attack the southern kingdom of, uh, of uh, Judah. And God is saying, that's not going to happen. You know, if, you, if you'll take heed and pay attention, I want to deliver you. In Isaiah chapter 8, in the next chapter, verses 5 through 8, the Lord also spoke to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in resident and Remaliah's son, now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty. The king of Assyria in all his glory, he will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. He will pass through Judah, he will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck and the stretching out of, of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Yet at the same time, the Lord says, but I will not allow him to destroy you. But the people of Judah's rejection of God's rest would lead to their mocking of the simple message given to them by the prophet. 
And this is what we saw last time. Their faith would eventually be not on God, but on their political alliances. That's where a lot of people begin to put their faith. It's an incredible thing if we even look at our own nation today and how many people for, for so long have started to put their faith in our government or started to put their faith in, in the things that uh, you know certain governments or certain uh, parties do. The fact of the matter is, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat, Republican, or liberal, or libertarian, or whatever else. That, that matters not to God. Our faith isn't to be in people. Our faith is to be in God. And here, the people of Judah were putting their, their faith in political alliances, as we see here in verses 14 and 15. And one of the saddest things that we find in this passage is that the people were being led by foolish, stupid, and immature men. And I, and I say that uh, uh, with all due respect, <laughs> because it's the word that is used. There's a word used called simple, and the, the word simple, when you look at it in the book of Proverbs, it, it translates directly to the word stupid. And so these people were being led by foolish, stupid, and immature men who scorn and mockery would be a, a scar on the nation of the, the whole nation, the entire nation. Look at verse 14 again. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. And again, there is that plea. Hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. The admonition is to hear. It is to hear. To listen carefully, to heed cautiously, and to pay attention with vigilance. Listen carefully, simply because none of them was too high or exalted or so advanced for God's Word. And to listen and receive it, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Folks, that's what we saw last time. They were mocking the way that... Isaiah was bringing the message to them that they needed to heed God's word one line at a time, one precept at a time, a little bit here, a little bit there, but they were saying they were just mocking that. And Isaiah comes back in mockery to them using the very same thing. You still need to listen line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And how sad to think that some people, even in the church today, consider themselves so well-educated or so intellectually advanced from those around them that they don't need to be instructed, especially by people below their level of academic achievement. And I have to tell you, there are people like that in the church today. But what a contrast to those mentioned in the book of Hebrews who bear the responsibility of leading God's people. And these people were not trained in seminaries or cemeteries or any other kind of place like that. Bible colleges, some of them may have been brought up by the rabbis, but for the most part they were trained beginning with Jesus to the apostles, the apostles to the disciples, and so on and so forth. Until the Word of God came to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 3, verse 7, listen to what the people are to do with those who lead them. Remember those who rule over you. Why am I bringing this up? Because we're looking at the leaders of Jerusalem mocking God's Word. 
But in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, we are exhorted to remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you. Now notice this. Here's the difference and here's the contrast. When the word of God is spoken, whose faith follow, in other words, the leaders gave an example of faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. What do you see in them? What are you seeing in the lives of those who lead you in the word of God? A few verses later in Hebrews 13, verse 17, it says, obey those who rule over you. Now, they are to listen to those who rule over them, who have spoken the word of God to them, whose faith they are to follow. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. As those who must give account, let them do so with joy and not grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So, the church is being told to obey and and to encourage the leaders who are over them because the leaders are being faithful in giving the Word of God. And you do that so that they will be doing what they do with joy and not with grief. It saddens me sometimes to think, and I've I've heard these testimonies and, uh, you know, well, uh, stories, as it were, of, of, of pastors who have left the pastorate because, you know, they, they find themselves in a position where the people want to rule and the people want to tell them what to do and how to do everything. And it, everything becomes so, you know, organizational and rather than letting, it, letting the church be an organism which is supposed to be life in the body of Christ. And there's no joy in them at all. And they look and they try all kinds of things. Oh, let's try this. We, you know, they got this book out there. They got this, this plan out there. They got this DVD out there. Maybe we can grow. We can do this. And they start looking at things and they don't look at God. And how simple it is. If we will just teach God's Word and be an example of faith. But you see the contrast going all the way back to, to Isaiah's time and the people who were, who were ruling in Jerusalem. They weren't speaking God's word. They were mocking God's word. And everything was turned around. And the people who were supposed to be leading were actually bringing grief upon the people. Because they were far from God's word. Because they were far from God, period. The rulers in Jerusalem, as we see in our text, were quite severe in their rejection of God. They were intense in their rejection of God, while at the same time believing that God's judgment and discipline would never reach them or come against them. That's the kind of arrogance that these rulers had. They rejected God's Word, but they said, but none of those things that, you know, that, that we, we, we ought to be fearing, we're going to fear. We don't need to fear it. It's not going to happen. Do you know why? Look at verse 15. Because you have said, see Isaiah says to them, this is why you have said this, we have made a covenant with death, And with Sheol, we're in agreement. In other words, they have made a covenant with death and hell. By the way, Sheol here is uh, is the realm of the dead, as it were. The nether world, as some translations may have it. But they have made a covenant with death and with Sheol. And then it says, when the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us. This is what they're saying. It will not hit us. When this wave of of some sort of judgment is coming, it's not going to hit us. 
For we have made lies our refuge. And under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. They're even admitting to what they're doing and making these agreements with death and hell. Boy, you talk about being so far from God that you make an agreement with your enemy. The enemy of, of, of men. People don't realize, the Bible teaches us that our great, one of our greatest enemies is death. There's an immediate application to this prophecy, by the way. But there's also a future one. In the immediate application of this prophecy, the reference is without a doubt Judah's attempt to form an alliance with Assyria or with Egypt to protect themselves against one or the other of these two powerful nations. In other words, we're going to make an agreement with one of these guys so that we are protected. You see, that's, that's where their trust was. Their trust was going to be in their alliances and their treaties with either Assyria or with Egypt. You know, whichever has the better offer, I suppose. But either way, we're going to make this covenant then with death and with Sheol, and they're not going to touch us. And in the days of King Ahaz, they had made a secret treaty with Assyria. In King Hezekiah's day, they turned to Egypt for help. They proudly felt that they had, with great diplomatic skill, made an agreement with death in the grave to the extent that these great powers would do them no harm. But these covenants were destined to fail because God was never in them. God was never in these covenants. And we're talking about the people who are supposed to be God's people making this covenant with death and with Hades or Sheol. Now who would ever want death to be their friend? Who would ever want death to be their friend? We live in a very funny you know, not ha-ha, but a very weird society. And, and it really didn't start in our time. I mean, you can go all the way back to the late 19th century, maybe even before that, but, you know, there was this uh, <clears throat> obsession, I suppose, with, with, with death by some great authors, as they call them, you know, writers, who talked a lot about death. Edgar Allan Poe was one, and so on and so forth. But all of that kind of transferred through all of our English literature classes and you know, American literature classes, whatever. We get down to the day and age of, of people like Kurt Cobain and his, you know, his own interest in death. And then, of course, he takes his own life. And people who are interested in his life because he was a rock star, he all of a sudden began to... Uh, there were actually covenants made back in the 90, 90s, the 96, 97... Uh, couple of people, I forget exactly, it was in California, but, you know, they kind of got together and they made this pact and they went out just because they were so interested in death. They thought death was their friend, that death was going to take them into a whole new vista, a whole new world, a whole new place, but all it led was to was darkness. And these were people that came out of the church and they both jumped off this cliff and, and died together, committed suicide. Interest with death, I mean, who would ever want death to be their friend? What is the fascination some people hold with graveyards today? And the passing of life, especially through suicide. How many would give anything? Folks, listen carefully to me. How many would give anything to come back to this world where they could repent and get right with God? 
because of what they know now to have been a delusion and a deception by the enemy. How many of them would want to come right back but cannot? And you think of that rich man and this story that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus, the poor man. The man, you know, pleaded with Lazarus, you know, give him, or pleaded with Abraham, and, but, you know, just to give him some water or something because where he was was miserable. You know, we can't, you can't go anywhere. <laughs> People have taken their eyes off of the Lord. Their fascination on things that have no, no weight at all in them for eternal life with God. At the same time, as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't fear death because we know what happens when we as believers die. When we who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we know where we'll be. And we'll wait for the day that the Lord has chosen for us. You see in Psalm 56, verses 11 through 13, it says, In God, the psalmist says, In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of the living? That is the the heart of the Christian. That is the heart of the believer who does not fear death because God has delivered our soul from death. Psalm 68 verse 20, the psalmist says, Our God is the God of salvation and to God the Lord belongs, escapes from death. Then the classic passage in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 57. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is swallowed up in victory. The victory that was won for us on the cross of Jesus Christ when Jesus said it is finished and He died. But three days later, He destroyed death by rising again from the cross. That's the victory that we should focus our attention upon each and every day of our life. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust that He will still deliver us. We might have a sentence of death on, in this life, but God has defeated death. For it is our great enemy. And so, getting back to Isaiah and, the, and, the, and this, this thing with these leaders, you know, the, 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 so the enemy would come upon them, you see. The enemy would come upon them like a flood, a storm, literally a scourge, which is a whip. And that word is used in our text there. 
when the overflowing scourge passes through. It's like a flood, it'll come, and, and, and there would be no escape, you see. In other words, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, would be destroyed, and Judah would escape by the skin of their teeth. The bed that they had made with their alliances would never give them rest. There's some implication of this, this thought of a bed, and you'll see it in just a moment. But the bed that they had made with their alliances with other nations would never give them rest. And the covering that they made with their treaties, the coverings, you know, the, the sheets and the... And what not, with their treaties, would never truly cover them at all. When man tries to do, do these things and deal these things with death and with the grave, it is a refuge of lies. In Isaiah 31, verse 1, it says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because there are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Woe to those who do this. Because the end is destruction. Now the future application of this prophecy is without question pointing to the last to a last day's covenant between the willful king in Jerusalem. And, you know, here's, here's, here's the picture being drawn again and, being, and, and getting ready to be fulfilled again. The head of the Jewish state at, the, at whatever time that's going to be. And, and, and this covenant between this, this willful king and, and the beast or Antichrist, the head of a ten-kingdom empire pictured in the seventh chapter of Daniel's prophecy and in the thirteenth and seventeenth chapters of the book of Revelation. This covenant will be made for seven years, but will be broken midway. Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 tells us this. It says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, being a week of of years, so seven years. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years later, in other words, a covenant is made with peace. Three and a half years later, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate the abomination of desolation that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 24. Even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. And so it's going to happen again. And it's been described that it's going to happen again this very way. A willful king will make a covenant with the Antichrist. And remember that Paul says in Second Thessalonians, in, in, uh, I'm sorry, in the, First Thessalonians. Be careful when you hear them cry, peace and safety. Because when they do, sudden destruction will come. So there's an immediate application and a future application. A near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And then there's that interesting phrase there again in verse 15. And you're thinking, we're never going to get through this chapter. Yeah, we are. Last part of verse 15 says, For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. Interesting statement. We have made lies our refuge. David Guzik points out a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. A sermon called Refuges of Lies and What Will Become of Them. Refuge of Lies and What Will Become of Them, which he lists six lies. Six lies that men try to take refuge in. The lies that men try to take refuge in in Spurgeon's time, which was over a hundred years ago, and in our time today. 
And you'll see this. The first one is this. The lie that we are or can be good enough. The lie that we are or can be good enough. The Bible says that there is none good, there is none righteous, no, not one. But man today thinks that he can be good enough. I was listening to the TV the other day and they were talking about... Uh, uh, I was a preacher. He was preaching about, uh, you know, uh, some people today think that all they have to do is die to go to heaven. Once they die, they just go to heaven. And, and where does that come from? This is the fact that, well, if you've done, you know, if, you're, if your good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, and that's all you need. If you die, you go to heaven. Well, I think I'm good enough. But the Bible tells us that none are good. Why? Because the heart of man is desperately wicked and who can know it? Before we came to know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we were lost, completely lost and would have been lost. And if we had died before we came to Christ, man, we would, we would be in trouble. Because our faith would not have been in Christ who had died for our sins. And so the first lie is the lie that we are or can be good enough. The second lie is this. The lie that fate, as man sees it, or fate from the, or predestination from the, the view of man, the fate uh, or predestination that determines all. In other words, it's out of, you know, our control and even for some that fate is their God and that is, you know. So the lie that fate or predestination determines all, so there is nothing for us to do. We just sit back and whatever happens, happens. That's... You know, that's a misunderstanding of what true biblical predestination is. God talks about it, I and mean, Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 8. The fact is, in, in man's mind, you know, the lie that fate uh, determines everything, and whatever happens, happens, and so there's nothing for us to do. We, we just get the, 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 the hand that's dealt to us. And that's an interesting thought coming from Spurgeon, Spurgeon being a Calvinist as he was, and and, you know, somebody who believed in, you know, the sovereignty of God. But he also believed in the, in the responsibility of man. Thirdly, the, uh, he speaks of the lie that places confidence in new false teachings. You know, all of the, you know, the Bible is just old. It's, it's you know, it's old-fashioned. It, it, it was probably written for another time. But not for us today. We're a little bit too, more, we're, we're a little bit too much sophisticated for the Bible. We're, we're, we're a little bit more sophisticated than, than, than the Bible is for us. So, you know, the Bible is for another time. It's a nice thing. Maybe good stories to tell our kids and stuff. But, you know, uh, but, but that's a lie, folks. It's a lie. The book of Jeremiah tells us, teach the old paths. Stay on the old path, the one good path, the one true path, the narrow way. Jesus said there's a broad way that leads to destruction. There's a narrow way that leads to eternal life. We need to stay on that path. And it's the word of God that lights us through to that place. The fourth lie is the lie that religious profession is enough. Well, I belong to this church, or I belong to that church, or I have my membership here, or I have my membership there. It's about membership. It's about a relationship. A relationship to Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. It's unfortunate. I, I remember in times past being a part of the denomination and, and seeing some guys, you know, that were 
supposedly, you know, elected to be deacons. And deacons, not in the, in the biblical sense of deacon, you know, deacons who were servants. These were deacons who wanted to become deacons because they could vote and they could vote you in and vote you out if you were the pastor. So they wanted the power, you know. And, and a lot of times those, those, those same deacons were, you know, guys that, you know, maybe came to church and they were faithful to come to church on, on Sunday, but the rest of the week, you know, their language was terrible. They were smoking, they were drinking, they were doing this and doing that. And, and, and you know, the, the, the reflection of that was, you know, people said, well, but they boasted, you know, well, I'm a deacon in the church. I remember a guy named Deacon Fry on TV. He was going to fry because he didn't have a heart, a true heart of a servant. You guys, that was too long ago, wasn't it? All right. I forgot the name of the the show that was. Deacon Fry. Yeah, he's going to fry. Uh, The fifth lie, the lie that one can have a saved soul in an unchanged life. Listen carefully. How can you have a saved soul in an unchanged life? Paul said, the old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The Lord has given us a new heart, a new mind. Be renewed in the spirit of, in the spirit of your mind. You know, we have a new mind. A new mindset. The mindset of the spirit, not the mindset of the flesh. But it's unfortunate that some people will tell you, listen, oh, listen, if you just, did, if you just prayed this prayer, then you're saved. And that's all you need. And the life never changes. Makes you wonder, did that person really come to Christ? That's the fifth lie. The lie that one can have a safe soul and an unchanged life. When God saves you, He changes you. But then you realize you change. That's what repentance is. You repent, you turn completely in the totally opposite direction from where you were going. That's a change. If there's no change, then the question is, is that a safe soul? The last lie is the lie that trusts an old experience instead of an ongoing relationship. Oh yeah, I got saved 55 years ago. Of course, everything else I've done since then, you know, I've been, you know, I don't go to church anymore. I don't speak to God anymore. I don't care about God. But I had that experience then. It's a lie. Now, I know only God knows the hearts, and I'm not going to judge anyone myself. Those are interesting lies, refuge of lies. We, we, we find a refuge, a place where we can be content. Well, oh, listen, you know. I. Maybe I can be good enough. Maybe, maybe there, there's nothing for me to do. I just kind of sit back and see what happens. Oh, it's a new teaching now. I, oh, it's, it's different than the Bible, but, you know, the refuge of lies. Let's move on so I can finish tonight. There was only one hope for God's people. There was only one hope for God's people. And folks, let me also say this. There is only one hope for God's people. It was and is in the tried and true foundation stone, the rock of ages, the Messiah himself. And in verses 16 through 19, Isaiah says, Therefore thus says the Lord God. Is it warm in here, by the way? How many of you say it's warm in here? How many of you say it's not? 
Okay. The warm ones win. It's warm in here. Okay. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Also, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. Now, now notice that these are, these are terms of, of, of surveyors and, and of engineers, you know, measuring lines, plummet lines. The, the, the hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the hiding place. The refuge of lies, the things we were just talking about, the things that people try to be content about, even though they're all lies, all of that will be swept away. Why? Because there's one standard, there's one line, there's one corner, there's one cornerstone, and everything lines up in that, and that cornerstone, and that rock of ages is Jesus. The waters will overflow the hiding place. Your covenant will be, your covenant with death will be annulled. And your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. As often as it goes out, it will take you. From morning by morning it will pass over. By night and by day it will be a terror just to understand the report. (laughs) By looking to man instead of the Lord Himself, they would fail to maintain the peace and the security which they hope to safeguard. We know that this is a reference to Messiah when it talks about this cornerstone, when, we, when it talks about this stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone. We know it's talking about the Messiah. We know that because even Peter himself in 1 Peter chapter 2 uses this to point to Jesus when he says in verse 4, coming to Him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built upon a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. He's quoting from this. Elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And that cornerstone wasn't just a, you know, just kind of a little thing. I mean, it it was a massive stone. Set perfectly on the corner to align everything to it. Paul even says in Romans 9, verse 33, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. You see, these men that were trusting in men and trusting in their alliances were eventually going to be put to shame. But when you trust in the rock, and when you trust in that cornerstone, when you trust in God, when you trust in the Messiah of Israel, you are trusting in us, in a rock that you will not have to be put to shame. You will not be in shame for it. No matter what the world throws at you, no matter what what comes at you, every storm that comes, you're standing upon this rock. Nothing will move you. Nothing will take you out of the way. Nothing will get you off of these standards that God has set in Jesus Christ. Even Jesus Himself uses this terminology when He says in Mark chapter 12 verse 10 in His parable, 
the parable that points to him, he says, Have you not read, even read the scripture, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? So you have to look at this as a contrast. What a contrast to the narrow, the, the weak foundation of the wicked. What was the foundation of the wicked? It was their lies and it was their falsehood. It was their refuge of lies and it was their falsehood that they tried to cover themselves with. But we have a stone of foundation, a stone for a foundation. And that stone is Jesus Christ. It is a stone that one day will come again and crush everything that is in opposition to Him. Right now, we live in a time where we want people to come to Jesus so that they not miss out on the blessings that God wants to give those who come to Him by faith, who come to Him and, and, and surrender their lives to Him. Those who He calls. But in all of this, it is God who does the work. It is God who lays in Zion a stone for a foundation. It is God who is, is working all of these things out for the good. It is God that is doing what we cannot do for ourselves. And these men began to trust in their own strength, in their own power, in their own wisdom, in their own uh, diplomacy, trying to trust in all of these things, but never trusting in God. We are to behold the foundation that He has laid. And notice that we, He says, behold. That, that's, a, that's a very important statement that He makes. He says, behold, I lay. In other words, pay attention. Because we are to appreciate it, behold it, appreciate consider it with great wonder, consider it as a valuable thing, consider it as something dear to us, and we are to build our lives upon it. I, I, I honestly believe, and, and, and I say this with, with as much love as I can muster to say this to you tonight. I'm probably saying it to, you know, it's kind of like they say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, because you're here. Maybe I need to be preaching to everybody who's not sitting in those other empty chairs out there. But the fact of the matter is that, that uh, how many behold Jesus with fascination, behold Him with appreciation, behold Him with wonder, behold Him with consideration, behold Him as a valuable thing in our lives, behold Him as precious to, to our lives, so much so that we will not let anything else get in the way when we deal with troubles and we deal with trials and we deal with circumstances and temptations that are beyond our control. Why is it that some people today will say they're believers in Jesus Christ and they'll come to church and they go through the motions and all, but as soon as some kind of tragedy or some kind of trial hits, all of a sudden they're off and doing their own thing and they're getting mad at people or they're getting you know, uh, vengeful and, and, and wanting to say and become like the enemy and become like the ones that are attacking them. Why does that happen? I believe it happens because we have not made Christ precious in our life. I believe it happens because, we, because we've taken our eyes so far off of God, now we're, we're leaving it up to ourselves. And what good is it to preach and to teach the Word of God day in and day out, and people will say, oh, that's nice, and go off and do whatever they want? Now do you see why it sometimes grieves those who care for your souls? 
Our care for your souls is, I am going to study, and I'm going to study the Word of God to, to, to rightly divide it, so that you are given what is necessary for you to live your life when you walk out those doors for the Lord Jesus Christ. And to trust Him with all of your heart through every circumstance, through every trial. Not giving up. Not giving in. Not giving over. But giving totally our lives to Him. We can do so because it is a tried, attested, and proven foundation. Jesus has proven you can stand on Him. As a cornerstone, He is straight, He is true, and everything in the entire building lines up to its pattern. This is what we are to do with Jesus Christ. He is our sure foundation, and whoever believes in Him will not act hastily. Do you see that? That's part of the text. Whoever trusts in Him will not act hastily. Why are we acting hastily when we face certain situations in this life? Or as the Apostle Paul quotes this verse in Romans 10, 11, for the Scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. It burdens me when people act on their own hastily and they are put to shame in front of the world that says, if that's what Jesus Christ is all about, or if that's what the church is all about, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And yet, in the text, it tells us that with justice and righteousness, God establishes the cornerstone and builds the edifice His way. The Lord will build His church His way. And that is, so when the storms of life and God's judgment blows through, the only things that are swept away are the refuge of lies and their hiding place, simply because they were built on the wrong foundation. You remember what Jesus taught about building on sand and building on a rock? It's the same thing person who builds his whole life on sand, one day the storm is going to come and that, that, that building is going to be torn up. That house is going to be floating in the sea. But when the house is built on a foundation, a rock, the foundation of Jesus Christ, no matter what kind of storm comes, that place is never going to fall. Their covenant with death and Sheol will, will be annulled and the, and the scourge of judgment uh, will beat on the morning and night and day and night and morning by morning. I mean, that's what, the, what Isaiah is saying. You know, that's what the Lord is saying through Isaiah. Their covenant with death will be annulled. Their scourge of judgment will just keep coming and coming and coming. But whoever turns away from the Lord and trusts in their own plan of deliverance will find themselves like the uncomfortable sleeper mentioned in the next verse. Look at verse 20. For the bed is too short to stretch out on. There's that bed I told you about. For the bed is too short to stretch out on and the covering so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. Some of you couples know what I'm talking about. bed is a little too short, your feet hanging out. When we went to uh, China a long time ago, back in 1989, we went to this, this place in Hong Kong called the International Hotel. And I got in there and I thought, that's what i got to sleep on. My feet were hanging out like a, you know, you know it, was, it was, you know, it's like you know, fetal position time because that was the only way to stay in the bed. And then the cover was like a bib. Yeah. That's a picture here. 
For the bed is too short to stretch out on, and the covering is so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perazim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon. That he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. Interesting phrase. Now therefore do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord Lord God of hosts a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. And so in reality, the rulers of Jerusalem would no longer be able to find refuge due to the fact that they had rejected God, which in turn gave them no peace, no rest, and no warmth. That's the picture. Isaiah paints a picture of the world desiring their bed, working, striving, longing, only to find it too short and the sheet so narrow that they could never keep warm. And on the other hand, the child of God is given rest, peace, and covering by Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-17, through 17, John writes, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. That's what happens. We begin to trust in the things of the world. It comes to nothing. The picture of the Lord rising up. If you look at verse 21 and see what it says there. The picture of the Lord rising up was an ominous, uh, uh, was an ominous one to those rejecting God. For those rulers of Jerusalem had to realize that to fight against the Lord was a losing proposition. He had, risen from, uh, he had risen for David at Mount Perazim in a victory over the Philistines. And, and, and for Joshua in the valley of Gibeon over the Amorites. That's, what, that's what's being mentioned here. But Joshua and David were godly men. See, that, that's the only difference. Joshua and David were godly men who trusted in Yahweh and, and they obeyed His word. They trusted in God and they obeyed His word. But, but they didn't realize that the unusual act, the strange work, and I'm speaking of, of these rulers in Jerusalem, they didn't, rise at, they didn't realize that the unusual act and the strange work, that he would use the enemy to fight against his own people. He would use the enemy to fight against his own people. The rulers were being warned of the dangers of mocking God with their deals with death and their insolent, disrespectful, and arrogant words against the Lord. And so listen to the last part of this in verses 23 to 29. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. How many times does he say listen there? Four times. Give ear and hear my voice. That's twice. Listen and hear my speech. That's two more times. Four times he says listen to me. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cum- uh, cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows, barley in uh, the appointed place, and spelt in its place? For he instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin. But the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with a rod. I'm not going to go through this whole agricultural stuff here with you, but I'll give you a little explanation here in a moment. Bread, flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever. In other words, there are certain ways of doing things. Break it with his cartwheel or crush it with his horseman. This also comes from the Lord of hosts who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. Verse 23. 
makes it utterly clear that someone better be listening. Isaiah goes on to present a poem now that relates the work of God with the work of a farmer. And just as a farmer has different tasks to perform and must adapt himself to each task, whether it be plowing or sowing, so the Lord must do the work necessary to bring about his eternal purposes. In other words, a farmer not only, a farmer not only plows, he knows when to stop plowing and when to level the ground, when to plant and, where, and what to plant there. He uses different tools at different times and works them all together to produce his crops. That's what's being said in all of this. In the same way, God knows what tools to use in our lives and when to apply them. We don't have to doubt or to despair at what the Lord is doing in our lives because He is that expert husbandman or or farmer who works on us in all wisdom to accomplish His purposes in us. In Romans 8.28, many of us are familiar with this verse of Scripture. Paul says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to His purpose. An interesting verse here. In the Greek translation, there is reference to the fact that it is telling us that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him. To those who are the called according to His purpose for them. Great verse. In Ecclesiastes 3.17 it says, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. In Ephesians 1 verse 11, Paul says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You'll notice that at the end of our, of our text here in, in, in Isaiah 28, that says, This also comes from the Lord of hosts, this poem to show how God works in various ways, who is wonderful in counsel. By the way, that's the same from Isaiah chapter 9, where it tells us that uh, um, his name is Wonderful Counselor, the same words. He's wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. And he is indeed wonderful. And his counsel and guidance are excellent beyond compare. And so because of this, we ought to trust Him. We need to trust Him. We must trust Him. And not men, not ourselves, not in our own wisdom, not in our own strength or in our own power. We must trust in the Lord. And trust in the firm and strong and sure foundation that is our rock of ages, Jesus Christ, in whom we can hide. Man cannot hide in his lies. Man cannot hide in his falsehoods. But the believer in Jesus Christ can hide in the cleft of his rock. We can hide under the shadow of His wing. But at the same time, we can stand. And we can face the wiles of the enemy. Why? 
because we clothe ourselves with the armor of God that is all of Jesus Christ upon us. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel, and the peace of the gospel, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the shield of faith. Let us behold the cornerstone. Let us appreciate. Let us value highly the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.